This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Rebecca Mishuris, Chief Medical Information Officer of Boston Medical Center Health System. Dr. Mishuris, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, before we begin the questions, uh, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, so as you said, Rebecca Mishuris, I am a primary care physician at Boston Medical Center and the Chief Medical Information Officer at Boston Medical Center Health System, um, which at a very high level means that I um, try and figure out how to best utilize health IT to improve outcomes um, and quality of care for our patients um, and the communities that we serve. That obviously encompasses a lot of different things, um, including optimization of our electronic health record, um, figuring out virtual care and and telehealth in in our new world, um, determining how we um, are going to vaccinate 200,000 patients um, over the next few months, um, and, and down to smaller things, like how do we optimize workflows um, at the clinical level, and, and how do we identify safety um, concerns and address those safety issues. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. First, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your um, how COVID-19 has changed your strategy and view around virtual care and technology. Completely, actually. Um, so prior to March of 2020, um, our hospital had almost no virtual presence um, in terms of care delivery. Um, and that all changed on March 13th when we um, essentially moved the vast majority of our ambulatory care to a virtual world started off 48 hours later um, with mostly telephone visits and a week after that launched video visits. Um, Since then, we've um, completely rehauled what we were doing in the spring um, to support virtual health um, and and really tried to think about how virtual health will remain a vital part of how we deliver care rather than as an add-on service. So I I think, you know, before the pandemic, um, people generally thought of virtual health or virtual care as an add-on to traditional in-person care. And then maybe it might expand from there. I think now um, we've seen that virtual care is already mainstream um, and we have to really think about how we integrate it into care delivery and how we create um, more effective care delivery through the use of both virtual care and in-person care rather than either alone. I think with that comes our need to really focus on making sure that people have access to virtual care. Um, and because it's no longer an add-on service, because it's, it's how we deliver quality care, um, we have to make sure that it is accessible um, to all of our patients equally. Got it. That makes sense. And when you think through your strategy and looking at what aspects of virtual care and telehealth will really remain as a key part of your ability to deliver care in the future, what do you still need um, and what do you feel pretty confident about? Um, I think we still, um, as I said, right, need to address um, equity and access to virtual care. Um, And that comes both as just broadband access, although we don't have a ton of issue with that in the middle of Boston, um, but affordability of that broadband and internet service, technology literacy um, for our patients who who may not know how to use um, the technology that is is kind of coming online with healthcare. um, and, And healthcare priority and understanding of of the benefit of healthcare being delivered virtually. A lot of our patients, um, you know, and quite honestly, a lot of our providers are very used to in-person care. And so 
what is it other than the huge convenience of virtual care that you can be anywhere to, to get that service? What is it about virtual care that, that actually improves outcomes for you that should make you want to have virtual care um, or care delivered virtually? So I, I think access is a, is a big one. And from that, right, extends the idea that almost everybody has a telephone or access to a telephone. And so um, what kind of virtual care should be delivered or could be delivered effectively over the phone versus video and requiring video, which um, maybe requires more thought around equity and access than, than phone um, access would. I think, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about how this is, you know, the, the pandemic is horrible in many, many ways, but um, one of the silver linings, I think, will be the advent um, and kind of catapulting of us all into this virtual world um, of healthcare delivery. And, and I'm really excited to actually see how um, this becomes a inflection point in how we deliver care and our ability to look at um, the systems we have in place to optimize care delivery that includes both virtual care and in-person care. Got it. That makes sense. Now, you just described being excited about how the evolution of virtual care could um, expand access and really take care to a new level. Is there anything else you're excited about right now and, and what really makes you nervous? I think from a clinical perspective, I'm really excited about vaccinating everybody. And that actually requires a lot of computer work, um, which I think most people don't realize. And so we're, we're right in the thick of that currently in, in trying to stand up systems that allow people to access vaccination where they want to and, and when they want to. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that clinically and from a, an information technology perspective. I think I'm also really excited that technology is no longer just the EHR and that people are thinking about how we use other technology to support care delivery. The focus certainly over the last decade or more has been around the EHR as it should have been. Um, and we are by no means done um, with that, right? We have not kind of fully realized the ability of the EHR to transform how we're delivering care, I think particularly when it comes to population health, but we've moved the needle quite a bit. And now we're bringing other systems into play that will allow us to continue to address quality outcomes and, and care delivery systems in new ways. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that as well. Fantastic. Um, is there anything that comes up that makes you a little bit nervous or, or you're concerned about? Um, I think not to be a broken record here, right, but, but equity, equity in, in access um, makes me pretty nervous. I think there are a lot of moving parts to that, not just um, the ability for us to build technology that is accessible, but, but the ability for us to have systems and governance and infrastructure in place that makes technology accessible. And it really spans all realms, right? We're not just talking about healthcare. Um, when it comes to technology, equity, and access, we're talking about education and jobs. Um, and so that gets into economic recovery. And a lot of people are, are thinking about how do we make technology more accessible to everyone and, and make that an equitable distribution and access point um, for healthcare as well as education and jobs and, and everything else. But I think we can't let our foot off the gas um, in that realm. And, and we really have to think about what's the infrastructure we need in place what is the outreach we need? What is the education we need to make sure people know how to use the technology? Also to think about what the technology is being used for and, and how that happens, whether it's in somebody's home or a library or a public space, right? Only one of those are you really gonna wanna have a healthcare interaction, right? You don't really wanna have 
your PCP visit in the middle of the library or in a public space. You want to have that in a private space. You're talking about sensitive topics. Um, and not everyone has that kind of access. And so as we think about kind of broadband access and equity and technology literacy, I think we also have to think about privacy and how we create private spaces for virtual health. Um, because not everyone will have those accessible to them within the confines of their homes or their jobs, where you might suspect. Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for going through that with us. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I have one more question around leadership. What are your top three pieces of advice for aspiring clinical leaders today? Oh, goodness. I think that, you know, one, always go after your dream. Kind of set your sights on something and, and make sure that the things you're saying yes to are moving you towards that end goal. Um, knowing that that end goal will, will continue to evolve over your career. Um, but don't necessarily let others take you off of your path um, that you've set yourself on. I think from a you know, clinical leadership, right, absolutely requires systems thinking, requires communication skills, requires the ability to bridge silos and, and break those silos down. But I, I think, you know, as clinicians, we go to medical school and, and we've gone to college and, and kind of always had our eye on the next step. And the next step has always been very clear from college to medical school to residency. And then you get into the leadership world and the next steps become less clear. So having those steps clear in your head for yourself um, may take help. And so I think, you know, don't be afraid to lean on your mentors and your sponsors to help you define where you want to go. They should not be the ones telling you where to go, certainly, but to give you some structure and guardrails um, to your thinking and, and provide you with those opportunities to move your career forward. And so never underestimate it, a good mentor and a, and a good sponsor. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your conversation today, Dr. Mishiris. I really appreciate you being here and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Thanks for having me.